Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space. Welcome to the Gateway Sessions podcast, where we discuss the science of psychedelics, mental health, optimal human wellness, longevity, cutting-edge nutrition, and more science-based tools for improving your life. I'm Ariana Summer, and I'm the Global Innovation and Research Leader for Gateway Sciences. Psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, as well as other psychedelics, are being researched as mental health treatments for issues like PTSD, depression, or anxiety. Psilocybin in particular holds great promise to alleviate terminally ill patients' end-of-life or illness-related distress. Our guest today is at the forefront of the fight for the right to have legal access to therapeutic psychedelics. Spencer Hoxwell is the CEO at Theracil, a nonprofit group of healthcare professionals, patients, and advocates dedicated to facilitating legal access to psilocybin-assisted therapy for terminally ill patients in Canada. Since 2019, Theracil has successfully advocated for patients and healthcare practitioners, helping dozens to gain Section 56 exemptions and launched a training program for qualified healthcare practitioners to offer psilocybin-assisted therapy. Spencer believes that responsible drug policy requires effective organization and leadership, and is focused on bringing together the experts and advocates to facilitate change that results in increased access to compassionate care, harm reduction, and treatment options for those in need. None of the content in this podcast constitutes medical advice or should be construed as a recommendation to use psychedelics. There are psychological, physical, and sometimes legal risks with such usage. Please consult your doctor before considering anything we discuss in this episode. Spencer, welcome to Gateway Sessions. Great to connect with you today. Likewise, good to be here. You are the CEO of Theracil in Canada, and you're doing some really important work up there. You are a nonprofit, you're a coalition of healthcare professionals, patients, and advocates, and you are dedicated to helping people obtain legal access to psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your journey and how you actually became part of this endeavor? Yeah, absolutely. My background with psilocybin and really just in general, I'm 27 years old right now and started there with Bruce Tobin uh, three years ago. I'd come out of business school. I had got my degree working in organizational management. So I was doing sales, marketing, helping scale small companies, but didn't find as much meaning in that as I really wanted. And so eventually around 2018 or 19, I decided to go find myself and do a bit of traveling and Throughout my travels, spent a ton of time to not only read London psychology, a lot of Carl Jung, Rick Strassman, Terence McKenna, but also to find myself through psychedelics. And I had done them in university and high school, but really started doing the deeper dives once I was reading about how the, these legends, right? Like Terence McKenna had done them in Strassman. I realized that you know, psychedelics were more than just something that you take as a party drug, if you will, that there's actually a religious aspect of them, if you will. And if people don't like religious, you can just use spiritual. 
But nonetheless, I find it's sometimes an antidote to the chaos in the world of not knowing what meaning is. And so when I took it, I realized I have meaning. I have a deep sense of meaning. And that meaning would manifest itself in helping other people who wanted access to these substances for medical purposes and to help themselves find meaning, that they might be able to do that legally. One of the books that I suggest anyone read, a very short and sweet one, is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. It talked about logotherapy, which essentially says that any man or woman or anyone with a, a why can accomplish any how. Now, Viktor Frankl found himself in the concentration camps and had to find meaning and purpose in his life and was able to remember, memorize and finish a manuscript grieve the loss of his parents and wife and go on to be happy and, and, and live a prosperous life and write this amazing book. Similarly, I found that, you know, it had worked on myself and was hearing all these accounts of other people finding the same kind of meaning and, and specifically through much of the work that was being done at Johns Hopkins and NYU through the trials using psilocybin to treat end of life distress, which I mean, so many people have end of life distress or if not end of life, just distress due to life. When I came back from traveling, I had done a little bit of writing. I actually really enjoyed both reading, doing a writing course that another podcaster, Jordan Peterson, had put together. And it really helped me get my thoughts and everything in order. And that meant coming back from, I had been traveling in India and Thailand for about a year. And that meant coming back and starting some sort of organization. Now at the time, like, again, I was like 24, no one wanted to work with a 24 year old with no clinical background, no research background. So I decided to just put the bones of an organization together and start looking for therapists and doctors. And after three months found that doctor, Dr. Bruce Tobin out on the West coast, a true hippie, but also an amazing psychotherapist. And he had actually been also trying to get access for his patients on the basis that here in Canada, they have the right to die with medical assistance in dying. What kind? of democracy allows people to die, but not access a medicine that might be effective based on 50 years old uh, regulations around seeks to criminalize them or prohibit these substances. It's just not right. So he was very helpful in getting the organization set up. We used his name for his challenge of the ad, Theracil, and he became the founder of Theracil. And we turned it into a nonprofit with a, a mission to both train healthcare practitioners, patients, do public education and research. And so around that time, we found a number of patients and doctors, and I don't think many people thought that we'd be successful, but what we did was we just asked very politely to the minister of health. And in Canada, our top elected healthcare official, the minister of health has the power to grant any persons or class of persons an exemption from any of the provisions of our controlled drugs and substances act. It's a really nice piece of legislation. I'm sure most other countries have similar kind of health ministers who might even be able to do similar things, right? These are all just policies. Anything is possible. It's about finding the compassion in an elected official whose really job it is to help these situations where people's rights are being grossly violated. And so these patients and healthcare practitioners followed my lead and we put out videos. This was during the lockdowns, keep in mind. So we had to do everything virtually, but we put down videos of terminally ill cancer patients begging the minister of health for access to a mushroom that might alleviate their end of life distress pointing to the fact that they have the right to die. And our Minister of Health at the time, Patty Haiju, an amazing, courageous and compassionate woman, granted that access for those patients. It became the first time in 50 years in this country that anyone got access to a psychedelic illegally through a medical compassionate exemption. And that kind of set things off from there. 
donations started coming in, we launched our training program and we made the same compassionate plea to the minister, but on behalf of doctors and therapists so that they might take psilocybin for their training. This was under a very simple assumption that any therapist, anybody who's delivering any type of therapy, whether it be cognitive behavioral therapy, internal family systems, even talk therapy, that the first thing they do, the best practices is they are the patient. That's how you learn those things. So why would it be any different with psilocybin assisted psychotherapy? The minister agreed and granted about a couple months later on December 1st of 2020, uh, granted those exemptions for healthcare practitioners and our training program was launched. Now, to date, we've helped 55 people get access to psilocybin through this section 56, and we've helped in, in addition to 19 healthcare practitioners. However, the unfortunate truth is we probably have about 2,000 additional patients and 2,000 healthcare practitioners. We've trained 300 of them who are still looking for this access. We find ourselves with a charter challenge, a legal challenge aimed at striking down the laws that prohibit psilocybin access. We've written regulate regulations and we're going lobbying next week, Monday, November 28th to the 1st of December. We're going to Ottawa, our nation's capital. We're bringing terminally ill cancer patients and doctors, and we're going to try and rectify the situation. Uh, and demand the regulations that we've written be adopted. Otherwise, I really think it'd be a travesty. These people will have the right to a medicine that is designed to stop their heart, yet they will not have access to the medicine that is supposed to might heal their brain. It's really sad. And that's what we've done and where we're at right now. And I could probably talk for another 30 minutes on all the little things that go in there, but let's just let's do a little bit of back and forth talking to you and I. Outstanding. Spencer, thank you so much for giving us a comprehensive look and idea of what you're doing. And I think, and there's so many things I'd love to touch upon. The first thing that came to my mind, of course, you're 27 now, you were 24 when you started all of this. And you very humbly just said it was easy to find somebody who wanted to work with somebody, you know, that age and no clinical background. Yet with your determination and you having found your meaning during your own psychedelic journeys and so your journeys inward, but also your journeys outward into the world, you were on the mission to help other people also be able to access to connect with that meaning. Now, I would like to understand what were some, your age aside, but if you could give us an idea of some of the bigger obstacles you faced on the way to the point in the journey where you're at now and how you actually overcame them. That's one question that I have and would like to start with. Yeah, for sure. One of the biggest challenges was finding funding and money. I was pretty much dirt poor coming back. I didn't want to live with my parents. I didn't want to do that. I thought it was necessary to get out into the world and do something for myself. Moved to Victoria, BC, found a small closet in a, a huge house that was illegally housing like 10 people. I think it was designed to have four people in it. I lived in a closet and paid like 200 bucks a month for rent. I worked for free for eight months as the director of this nonprofit, but spent every single day scraping together money and trying to get this thing going. So that was one of the biggest challenges. I owe so much to the people who donated and helped cover some costs. No, eventually I owe so much to my parents who were incredibly helpful too. I think at one point my dad just sent me a bit of money. He was like, keep doing what you're doing. Right. Both my parents were helping me out during that and so many friends too. So, you know, that's how you overcome that, right? Your network, the people around you. I think that a lot of people are afraid of taking big risks like that, but I have to say it was the best risk I ever took in my life. And I hope too, the people who 
donated and helped. It was a risk for them too, but it paid off. Sounds cheesy or corny, but you can really do anything you put your mind towards. And I encourage anybody else who wants to jump into the space and help out to be serious about if they are serious about something to take risks. It's, it's what life is about and was a mantra for a while too, because not only was I taking a risk, but a lot of these patients who and doctors who were going to work with psilocybin and take it. They were taking risks too. And I think that our society sometimes is a little risk adverse, a little too risk adverse, but truly the greatest things in life come from risks. So that's one of the biggest challenges that I certainly had to overcome. And then of course, there's the idea of myself not being a doctor or a therapist, but earning and gaining the respect of therapists and doctors, being humble, right? And having the humility that you don't know something, but also at the same time, learning which principles might protect you and carry you. And certainly one of the principles that I found was this principle that healthcare is patient-centered. Patients get to make their own medical choices. doesn't matter what your degree is. If you're a doctor, if you're a researcher, if you're a therapist, a nurse, that's true. So that really helped us out. Some people might've been against this idea that patients can't be taking mushrooms. That's unacceptable. There's no research, but I had principles behind me. Certainly mm -hmm. the principle of patient-centered care and this liberty, uh, this is one of our core pieces of our charter, which is like our, or our constitution, the U.S. has a constitution, we have a charter, and then it sets out the fundamental rights in Canada and the law sits on top of the charter. It is the basis of the law in Canada. And it says, and this is the reason we've got a constitutional challenge, uh, striking the of psilocybin down is it says very clear in there that every Canadian has the right to life liberty and security of persons. And that yes. new set of rights gave us access to abortion, medical assistance, in dying, safe injection, prostitution, and cannabis. And you might look at all of those and say, where's the research? Where, is, where are the doctors saying those things are safe or effective? If there's research now, it was done after the fact that they were legalized. Yeah. Those things are rights. So I don't need to be a doctor to know my rights. That basis that really launched I think the ability for so many patients, doctors, and therapists to align behind the organization to realize that yes, the medical industry and the world wants to take psilocybin and proclaim it only medical, but I think that every person on this planet has the right to psilocybin and other psychedelics, other plant medicines, and maybe the synthetic compounds too. And just claiming that is enough to, to find yourself working with doctors and patients and therapists in a way that there's mutual respect and mm. understanding. I learned the value of principles and was able to use principles to both shape and govern our organization. And what could be of greater value than liberty? And a huge part of liberty is, of course, biological freedom, spiritual freedom, and being able to live and express that. I think also, if I am correct, your mother was a palliative care nurse. And, That's absolutely right. Yes. And she ran a mental health and addiction unit. And It, she actually told you, right, that it would be crazy if you didn't try and get these types of medicines, these psychedelics to people who are in palliative care. So was that also really a driver for working with people and focusing on individuals with end-of-life distress? Absolutely. And how could I forget my own mother too? Her, her encouragement is what really got me. It's really what got me going down this path. When I came back, I'd look to her as a healthcare professional. She put me in couple meetings with different doctors and therapists locally here in Toronto. 
they weren't as interested as the hippies out in BC were. But the funny thing is now they're, now they're scheduled meetings with me three years later saying, Hey, that one, I missed that one, but yeah, I would like to chat. Again. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. She told me and not many people think of going to their mother to ask about getting into legalizing some illegal drug and thinking that they'll be receptive to that. But my mom knew what I knew. And that is that for so many people who are walking into these mental health and addictions units, you're not going to fix the problem with drugs, not the ones that we're using like SSRIs, right? To antipsychotics, stuff like that. You're not going to fix the problem with these Band-Aid fixes and, and any of those. It's deep. It's got to be psychological change. And if really the best thing is not trying to change it, but preventative healthcare. And I would one day love to go in, into the field of preventative healthcare and figure out how we can stop these people from either even showing up in the first place. But she realized what I realized when I showed her the research, she said, yep, this checks out. These people fundamentally have something very broken um, in their belief systems, of who they are, what their place is in the world, the role of others. And that needs to be fixed. And I think seeing the research, she was like, if psychedelics are able to fix that, that absolutely that's what we need. I might mention too, that she had a little bit of experience with them and understood what, what could happen. Having her mother there is your number one was important and all the mothers out there. I hope that shows the importance of believing in your children and supporting them because it was absolutely bad. Couldn't have done it without it. That's wonderful, Spencer. And so with regards to the, what you're focused on, what uh, Theracell's mission is, which is to assist individuals who are dealing with end-of-life distress. For the audience who may not be as familiar with the research or with anecdotal evidence from people around them, how can psilocybin actually help these specific individuals? And are you just referring to the individuals that we were helping? Like the Yes. Yeah. yeah. What if the what are the so somebody who comes to you and reaches out and needs the help and you facilitate them actually getting access to these medicines, in this case, psilocybin. Maybe you can give us an example of the type of individual who comes to you and then how a treatment actually has helped them. Absolutely. First, the people that we were most focused on were end-of-life patients. So mm -hmm. I think of people like Thomas Hardwell and Lloyd Brooks. And I'll use these two as an example because both of them have outlived their prognosis and have been so wonderfully helped by psilocybin that's that they've gone on to be advocates to take play part in movies and documentaries. Um, so I'll use them as two examples. So these two people came in to Theracil reading about mushrooms on the internet, not really knowing anything, but seeing our site. And what we said we would do is we would help them get a legal exemption, get in contact with doctors and therapists and facilitate exactly what happened in the John Hopkins study. Right. It's here's a bunch of patients, 80% of them did or saw clinically significant reduction in their end of life distress, hopelessness, depression. Why wouldn't you just, why wouldn't we just repeat it here in Canada? And they loved it. They thought, yeah, why not? And if we can't do it through a clinical trial, we'll do it through the section 56. Clinical trials obviously weren't going to work. So we did it through section 56. We got the doctors and therapists on board. And then eventually once their exemptions were granted, Really, the doctors and the therapists took it from there. Many of them had been doing this treatment underground. That's no secret anymore. They were comfortable treating the patients. Other doctors and therapists that happened, they do our training and then get into treatment. But these patients would get mushrooms. Here's a interesting fact about the Section 56 process too, is those first 56 patients, when they got their exemption, the exemption didn't 
give them the ability to buy mushrooms from a store or from researchers. They still had to find their own. So they would find their own mushrooms, which is very easy these days in Canada. You usually just order them by mail. People walking around the street selling them. And there's even shops in Canada in the storefront right beside, right beside any other pharmacy. And it just says magic mushrooms for sale. That's what they do. They sell magic mushrooms. Um, and we'll get to that later, why that's not being shut down. It's, it's very interesting. That's how the patients got their mushrooms. They would get into a session and just like most people might know, three preparatory sessions throughout the course of a week or two, and then a eight hour medicine session where the patient has earphones and eye shades on, and then three integration sessions afterwards with a therapist. You know, what the patients were reporting was Let's take Lori, for example. She said that she had these fears of what was my family going to do if I leave them, right? That was her fear, maybe not of death, but more of family, right? When she's gone. And she reported that like when she was living her everyday life, her cancer was above her head, like a big black cloud. Could never not think about it. Whereas after the psilocybin journey, she realized it was something she could put away in a box and it will come out. She'll be able to put it away in a box and then get back to living her life. She even named her tumor and has a relationship with the tumor and has realized that there's so much of health and of being healthy is about psychologically being willing and able to combat sickness. And she sees sickness and health and death differently now. And the same goes for Thomas in a very similar way. He felt like he was being dragged by a horse towards a cliff. And he said, I'm still being, we're still moving towards the cliff. Everyone is, but at least I'm riding the horse now. His anxiety was unbelievably high before and even during his journey. But afterwards it went down to almost nothing. Now, both these patients have had to do second trips. Most people do have to do a couple of them. It's like, why not? There's lots to unpack. But the journeys they have, as far as I can see, they look happier and healthier. When I talk to them, they're full of energy. I don't see a possible way that they are not doing better and beating their prognosis because of psilocybin. I really think that people need to look at that in the context of not only our healthcare system, but other healthcare systems that will prioritize other drugs that are harmful, actively harmful, suppress the immune system, suppress emotions, and, and might even like medical assistance in dying, might even target just ending a person's life instead of trying to make them happier and healthier. And I think myself and a lot of these patients kind of bang their heads against the wall going, there's not even one reason, not even one good reason why these drugs are illegal, but there's a million reasons why they should be legal, why we should have access. And they're still, that's why they're still advocating. They're still trying to battle these ridiculous laws that make no sense. And talking about the laws, Spencer, what does the legal landscape in Canada look like presently? Of course, so you said on Next Monday, the 20th, you are actually going to fight for a change in this landscape. What do patients have to currently deal with when they wish to gain access to this, these medicines? And how do you help them navigate that? Can you give us a broad idea how that process looks like currently? For sure. So when we started this, there were two two ways to get access. The first was clinical trials, but there is a huge number of reasons that clinical trials are impossible or not right for what we're asking for. First and foremost, let's go back to those principles that we were talking about, right? Principle of life, liberty, and security of person. A clinical trial is a great way to get a drug approved. It's not what we're doing. We don't want a drug with a DIN, with a drug identification number. If you do, 
right? If you want to have a drug that you're going to prescribe, that you can sell and like a pharmaceutical company, clinical trials are the right route for you. But there's a reason that we didn't have clinical trials for cannabis, for prostitution, for medical assistance in dying, for abortions, because it's not about clinical trials. It's about rights. And so we refuse to do a clinical trial. It's absolutely outlandish. And anybody who says you've got to do a clinical trial is gaslighting patients and doctors. It's not about clinical trials. It's about research. And so we've been very firm and sorry, not about clinical trials or research. It's about rights. And so that's why we were, we've always said that's not a regulatory pathway. The government would tell us it is. So every time they tell us that they're gaslighting the patients and doctors who are saying that it's their right, which means at that time, the only possible way was section 56, which is how we got access, right? That request to the minister. Now, after, I guess that would have been in December of 2020, they announced that they would do another, create another regulatory pathway called the SAP. The SAP is a legacy program in Canada. It's used to help cancer patients or patients with severe illnesses get access to emergency drugs that aren't available in Canada. Again, this insistence on focusing on drugs stopped putting us into that category. And this came from some lobbying that other groups were doing. It came from certainly our insistence on getting patients access and finding a new way. But our government announced that they would make an amendment to this special access program to allow psilocybin access through it. And people were cheering and our message was very consistent the whole time. This is going to be a disaster. This is not going to work. It's not going to help patients. And we've been trying now for about a year to help patients through it. And again, out of that 2000 patients that we've gotten our wait list, I think 39 patients in Canada have successfully got access. And that's a lot of doctors and patients trying to use it. Most patients have been ignored or haven't been able to get access for ridiculous reasons, because at the end of the day, it's still a political process. It's a politician determining whether or not a patient gets access to their medicine. Unacceptable, totally unacceptable. Doesn't align with our rights. And so we know that we have a right to psilocybin. And it's again, why we've had to push this court case forward, because to date, we've got the government saying, do clinical trials. We say, we can't do clinical trials. It's, that's not appropriate for what we want. They go, okay, do the SAP. We can't, it's not still not appropriate. It doesn't work. So we submit these section 56s, but our ministers of health, Jean-Yves Duclos, our new minister of health, and they've actually created another position for a minister of mental health and addictions, Caroline Bennett. They're supposedly in charge of these special acts or the, these SA, section 56s, but they've been ignoring these patients, including Thomas Hartle and Laurie Brooks. Right. These are patients who got access to their medicine two years ago or three years ago. It worked for them. And then they asked for it again the second year because the exemptions were only good for one year. And the government denies them. On How is that possible? On right? what grounds were they denied? None. There were no grounds. They were denied on the grounds that it was more appropriate to do a clinical trials or an SAP. And the patients just said simply and made a very good argument. But we don't want that. We don't want access to a psilocybin drug because the psilocybin through the SAP program gets them access to a drug, a synthetic. That's not what they want, right? They want access to the mushroom, to the thing that helped them based on a constitutional right. I'm confident to say that the grounds that they denied those patients were absolutely unconstitutional. And it's why I'm confident in our court case. I absolutely know this court case is going to, however, it'll take two years. It'll take time and it's going to take a lot of money. And unfortunately, not many people are coughing up as much money as we need. I understand the economy is not great right now, but we need that money. And so the reason we're going to Ottawa is to help fundraise, to build awareness. 
But most importantly, we're going to demand a meeting with those ministers of health because whether the ministers of health like it or not, whether they want to misinform people that it's not the case that the patients aren't trying hard enough or the doctors aren't trying hard enough, those two ministers are blocking terminally ill cancer patients from accessing the medicine they were granted a year ago or a couple of years ago. It's terrible. It's really terrible. So we're going there. We're going to arrive. Maybe they'll ignore us. Most politicians do, but, uh, but we're still going to try. We're going to be protesting out front on Parliament Hill. We've got a couple of public meetings with different MPs and different lobbyists, parliamentarians, the senators. We're going to make some noise. And we'll be back there in the new year as well to do it all again. So that's, that's what we've got planned for next week and the coming future. And the whole idea with that meeting is we don't want to go to court. We don't want to spend millions of dollars in court. And I hope the government doesn't want to do that either. But the truth behind Canadian politics sometimes in our democracy, most politicians are afraid. They're afraid to take a stand, to be courageous and to do what's right. They'd rather be forced by the courts because they can simply just say bigger things to deal with. Let the courts force us to do this and then we'll do it. Where's um, risk-taking? Again, most people are not raised to take risks. And especially when you get into the realm of politics or big corporations, everybody's more afraid to lose their own seat at the table yes. of taking a risk and taking a stand for something that makes so much common sense. And this is certainly quite an obstacle that is in the way of patients getting the medicine that they need. I'm very glad to know you're spearheading this and with the passion and the purpose that you have, we're going to keep our eyes on this and just know that we're also going to be rooting for you and hope it will not take two years. The prognosis here in the United States is that we may get a legalization of, of this is of course a completely different compound of MDMA, maybe within the next 18 months, psilocybin potentially within the next two years, just looking at all these studies that are coming forth. And some of these studies have been in the making for many years from all kinds of different places, very renowned universities and researchers, where it's not just anecdotal evidence anymore, but where there's proof this, in the case of psilocybin, this medicine is helping so many people who thought they would not be able to get helped anymore, whether it's treatment-resistant depression or whether it's PTSD or severe anxiety. And speaking about those conditions, presently you're focused on end-of-life distress. Are there any plans in the future to expand your, the scope of your mission to also help patients who are struggling with the aforementioned conditions? Oh, absolutely. We've helped already a bunch of patients get access for treatment-resistant depression, anxiety, cluster headaches, chronic pain, so many things, alcoholism, opioid use disorder, successful treatments too. Just last week, I helped three other patients with treatment-resistant depression and a patient with alcohol use disorder get access through this SAP. Excellent. And we did it successfully. It took hundreds of dollars from each of the patients in order to get some help with lobbying. We had to get a CBC story together because the patients were being ignored. In fact, some of these patients were actually being asked to do electric shock therapy before they, they were getting access to psilocybin. We had to make that public in the media. People can check it out on our YouTube. But yeah, so it's moving very slowly and we're still helping beyond end of life right now. But yeah, it's, it, it'll never move beyond the conditions 
where there's been a bit of research done, unless we're able to get to regulations that, that, that stop focusing on this as a research thing, right? As a drug that needs to be approved to research, but actually looks at it more like a human right. Uh, because if we look at it through that lens of human rights, then anybody gets access. Anybody. Religious, spiritual, physical, health reasons, mental health reasons. You should, you should have a right to this. Yes. And there's a wonderful quote by the gentleman who you mentioned before, Bruce Tobin, who's also part of your nonprofit. And I'd like to read that quote. You've basically also paraphrased it before, but I think it is so profound. To have now acknowledged patients' right to die when faced with serious suffering at end of life. Surely Canadians have a right to try a medicine that may help them want to live. Very moved by how passionate you're pursuing your mission and how you're basing it on the science and also just on the moral and the human right. That's a very, very important aspect that so often gets missed in the larger scope of the conversation. Absolutely. No, it, it's, it, and it's understandably there's industries, like quote unquote psychedelic industry right now that wants to make money off. And I understand why so many of them are focused on drugs, right? Drug products, but I feel like before that, we should all be focused on the right, the right to this that everyone has. And I hope that Americans have the same right to it as well. I realize that as a nation, you haven't fully, you haven't fully enshrined the right to things like cannabis, but it's happening and it seems to be happening. And I really hope that soon you'll have the right to psilocybin too, the right to so many other things are always the, the result of years of litigation and rallying. I just hope we can get to this sooner than later because of how impactful it can be for people at the end of life or facing serious mental or physical illness, drug abuse. These things are rife and tearing our society apart. It'd be nice if we could do some healing sooner rather than later. Yes. And even for those people who are still skeptical about the whole process, what you've just mentioned is really important. We are having such a great fallout just from the mental health perspective right now, especially after these last two and a half years of the pandemic, which was a pressure cooker for pretty much everybody and uh, things that were looming under the surface really popped up. And this is not just something that, oh, individuals are dealing with something that's painful. This really filters into our societies also economically. So people who are just focused on economics may also want to listen up and take part in this conversation that's happening. And Spencer, thank you so much for what you're doing in your part of the world, moving the needle. It's really important work. And thank you for sharing with us what you and your partners are doing. And it was really great to connect with you for people who'd like to learn more about what you do, people who would also like to support what you do, where can they reach you? So they can go to www.theracil.ca. If you want to support us, we've got two links open for donations. The first is a charter challenge. The lawyers really need help in bringing this case to the Canadian government. And then secondly, this lobbying week that we're doing, we're trying to fundraise about $10,000 to cover the cost of getting patients to the nation's capital and setting up these meetings. We're certainly in need of funds. And anybody who can support, it goes so, so far. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Spencer, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. And as they would say here in America, Godspeed for coming Monday. Nice. Thank you so much. Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space.